Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Danny Wisentowski, in for Elaine Shaw. In 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed an ocean blue. It's a familiar story, an explorer landing in what is now the Bahamas, discovering the new world, and setting the stage for a revolution, democracy, and the world we live in today. That is one way to tell the story of America. Author Michael Harriet has a different story. Harriet grew up in South Carolina in a home built by his grandfather. It was in that home as a child in 1980 that Harriet discovered America. Harriet is about to become a debut book author. Out September 19th, that book is titled Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. And his story of America unfolds from that moment of awakening. The book sets out to deliver no less than a complete retelling of American history, covering everything from the Europeans' first encounters with native tribes, the arrival of Columbus, the streets of Ferguson in 2014, and the election of Donald Trump. Michael Harriet will be in St. Louis next week on September 22nd for a book event hosted by Left Bank Books and Schlafly Public Library, and he joins us now. Michael Harriet, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thank you for having me. Michael, just first off, what led you to start working on a book that covers so much of what we envision as American history? It was never my goal initially. A lot of people are surprised to find out that my background is as an economist. And I taught a class called Race as an Economic Construct. And one of my positions was that you can't understand the concept of race in America by interrogating or learning about black people because black people didn't create the idea of race. We don't perpetuate white supremacy or racism. You have to study white people. Well, I was right. I had pitched a book called White Peopleology about that specific subject. And then after the deal was closed, the publishers, they didn't like the subtitle of the book about white peopleology because they argued that no one had ever heard of this arcane (laughs) idea called critical race theory because the subtitle was toward a more critical race theory, a subject that I had studied in graduate school. And they said, well, nobody's ever heard of that. Of course, this was uh, four years ago, and now everybody's heard of critical race theory. So we decided to flip the order of the book and thus, this book was the first one. Now, Michael, you, you know, you are, you know, a thinker, you are a writer, you've written for the, the Grio and many other uh, national outlets. And I, I wanted to focus on one piece of your, your word choice here, and it's in the title of your book. And I feel like we, we should address it. Black AF, that is an acronym that some of our listeners may not be familiar with. And it's a way of describing the degree to which something is black, to be black as and, and then there's a word that starts with F that I can't fully say on the radio. And let's just say it rhymes with duck. And I bring this up because this, this really isn't a throwaway term. You are making an important distinction here. This history isn't whitewashed, but black AF. What does that mean to you? Well, so 
there are two ways we look at history. So there are people who read black history from black people's perspectives and it's about black people. And then we usually experience American history through the lens of whiteness, right? Which is one of the things that we, I talk about with critical race theory is that like white is, we don't consider white a race, right? And that it has a perspective. And so we usually kind of learn history, especially American history through a white perspective. Well, this book turns that on its side and it talks about history through the perspective of black people in America, right? So instead of one of the things that I point out early is that when we talk about early America, we talk about the Portuguese settlers, we talk about the English colonists, we talk about the Dutch uh, immigrants, and then all of the black people are just Africans or slaves. All of the indigenous people are just Indians or Native Americans. They don't have a history or a religion or a background or a political motivation, unlike the white people, right? So you can use that same template, but the French, the Dutch, the the English to black people in America, they were just white people, right? So when you talk about the Revolutionary War, to black people in America, it was just white people fighting white people. Like you didn't know, you didn't care about taxation or representation or the tax on tea. So you fought for whichever side was most likely to affect your freedom. Cause it was just two different kinds of white people fighting, like some dudes in red against some dudes in blue. Right. And, and that flipping on its head, you know, the notion of who is the protagonist, what is the default, who, who is taking action. This was something that you introduce into your book that your history, the history you were introduced to as a child, was this black history, was black AF. And I, I was hoping you would relate a bit of that story that you introduce in the introduction of your book. You talk about how you were homeschooled, taught by your mother, and you talked about what you learned in this particular room in that home built by your grandfather. You called it the middle room. What was that middle room and, and how did it affect your education? My grandfather built a home in Hartsville, South Carolina, which was about 15 or so miles from where his ancestors and my grandmother's ancestors were enslaved. So for the entire history, since he left the land where his ancestors were enslaved, everyone in my family deposited their books in this house, in a room in this house that he had lined with oak shelves. And so being homeschooled, I, my learning of history was largely self-directed. And so unlike, uh, you know, what you learn in school, right? There wasn't a differentiation between, for instance, history and English and language arts. And so one of the things that did, that did for me was let me know how important history was to how we understand things and how we contextualize things today. And the other thing it did was it didn't give me this subconscious nod or deference to whiteness that I would later 
experience that everybody has, right? Like the way we talk to white people, the way we believe white people have a special knowledge or an objectivity when it comes to America that really never exists. I never had that, right? And so I think history is important because it is part of how I understand everything just as it is with science, just as it is with math. It is all one subject and it is all one philosophy, the understanding of the external world. Right. And you know, you write in that introduction that the history you discovered in that middle room, it wasn't an alternative version of American history. It was the story of an entirely different place, wholly incompatible with the whitewashed mythology enshrined in our collective memory. And you write that you had never known that place because that America in reality does not exist. I'm, I'm curious, you know, in your understanding of that non-existent America, as, as you build the understanding of what black AF history is, what does that non-existent America mean? What are some of its features that you have to get around and, and grapple with to get to the truth behind it? So you think of the English who came here as some immigrants who came to a place where indigenous people already lived and they had a government and they had uh, tribes and legislation. And so when you disabuse yourself of that white perspective where the black people are Africans and the indigenous people are tribes and the white people are political groups and have countries with the borders, then you understand history in the same way. The same thing is true with the origin story of America, right? You, when you read the actual story, you know, like the first people who came over here, the first white people, they didn't know what they were doing. They st almost starved to death and they were largely unsuccessful. They needed the help of the natives. They basically needed government handouts to survive. And so that idea of rugged individualism and building a country from scrap never existed in my head. Hmm. You know, we, we talked about the, the middle room and where you, you gain this education. And you actually describe your own personal discovery of America, which we also talked about. And you, you actually date that discovery, just like in 1492. But for you, that date was November 4th, 1980, which was the election night of Ronald Reagan. Tell us you know, what that discovery was for you and, and how that revealed this this other America that you had not known to that point. I remember when Ronald Reagan was campaigning and I don't know who specifically said it, but someone said, like, you know, if he's elected, you know, we're going to be back picking cotton. We're going to be back in the, the slave fields. And so as a you know, a preteen, a person who's seven, eight years old, you don't understand sarcasm or hyperbole. So I believed it. And so that night, man, I was praying. I was like, I don't know how to pick cotton. I had never been in a cotton field. And so if this dude, Ronald Reagan, wins, man, we're going to have to just run away. Is there an Underground Railroad in 1980? Because I know how to you know, uh, navigate by the stars. I looked it up in the World Book Encyclopedia and learned how to follow the drinking gourd because the America that I had learned about was going to revert. And we've seen this happen 
in cycles since then, right? Like this reversion to the base of white supremacy. Well, I kind of experienced that and it was based on my understanding of America. When did you realize that that others had had this different education and upbringing, that others, their American history with guys like Columbus and the settlers, those were the protagonists of their America. Was that a shock to you to see how different others saw these same events? It was a shock. And it wasn't just a shock because I had learned a different history because I really just realized recently how, because you got to think about it, right? Because I was homeschooled, I also didn't know how other people learned history. So it was only when my children as an adult was in school that I realized, oh, they learned about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and these heroes when they're in the third grade. And then it's not until high school that they learn that they own slaves and it's hard to comport these heroes with this evil practice that you learned about later. Well, the re- the way I discovered this was when I started going to public school and I was in a class with, uh, I was the only uh, black person in the class. And then I had a friend who was put in the class with me and it was time for social studies one day. And um, I just made an off the hand comment of, oh yeah, now we're gonna learn that black people didn't exist until 1865. And she started laughing and I started laughing and the teacher got mad. And I realized that this was something that was almost insulting to the way that most people think of America. And it wasn't until then that I realized this. You know, Michael, your your book has so much of your family in it. You know, these your mother, your uncles, the stories of your grandparents. You, you even write in the voice, uh, I believe, of your uncle, or a person who's named uncle at one point. And it, it feels very much like a book that lets the reader into your family and in a way into your black history. Is is that a vulnerable way to, to write a book? I think it is. And I think it is also necessary to understand one of the premises of the book is that there is no objective history. All of the history we learn is subjective and it's based on how this person who's writing it, the historian or the author views the world. And I wanted to make people to be sure that like you understand that this is the perspective of, it's almost a love letter to the black people of South Carolina and my family. But that notion of using my family is illustrative of the idea that, oh, I'm not even going to rest on that pretense that this is an objective history because the white people's version of history, the version that you learned in the social studies book, isn't an objective version either. It was formed by the daughters of the Confederacy and ultimately what it leaves out is as important as what it includes. And those are not objective decisions, those are subjective. Those are based on what the people who are teaching history think is important to understanding America. And a lot of those important values are based on the ideas or rest in the ideas of whiteness. 
Michael, you were describing your book as a kind of love letter to South Carolina, to your family. And the other word that that came to my mind was the cookout. And, and you actually devote some space in your book to explaining what is a cookout, the way it can be literal, and the way that it also serves as a kind of symbol for the black community. I'm curious, is, is this book, with all of its characters and all of your own family members, is this a kind of cookout that you've created in book form? Yeah, I think so. I think it is relatable. I want it to talk to black people in the way that we talk to each other and the way that we understand each other and the way that we experience community. And so I wanted to be sure that this book did that. And I I also think that there is a familiarity with it, right? So when I write in the voice of my uncle, that's not just like a comedic, tool i want people to understand that a lot of ways like we understand our our understanding of the external world comes through the people who teach us our values for me it was uncle rob and who who isn't who is my actual uncle and and there are i interviewed people from my family and you know recalled stories of growing up to include in this book because I wanted it to be relatable. Right, and and you really do a, a great job of breaking down so so much history, so many people, and your book really takes us back, you know, before 1492 even. How, how did you approach of where to start this history, you know, as far as history can ever have a beginning? Like, so I wanted to do two things. One, I don't think you can start in America because the history of black people does not begin in America. And to understand America and black people, you have to go to the place or go to the times when these ideas of, for instance, race-based intergenerational perpetual slavery began. You have to go to the idea of why colonization was so important. You have to go to explain that black people who were brought to America were not slaves. They were human beings and scholars and doctors and healers and teachers who were subjected to this form of intergenerational race-based slavery because of how white people saw the world. And I think that's why I didn't think we could start in 1619 or 1492. We had to start, you know, we basically start with the Crusades and the discovery when white people were able to reach West Africa um, and Henry the Navigator. And so we start there and go through the history of the Catholic Church's involvement in race-based slavery, and then we go through the significant events that preceded the creation of what we know as America. And, you know, in that creation story, you you introduce us to so many interesting characters and people, and, and part of 
the tension there is that black people existed in this continent, and some of them were even part of these expeditions. And I, I had a sense from reading that you, you have a certain fascination for one of them, a guy named Juan Garrido. I had never heard about him before reading the book. What, why did he stick out to you so much um, looking back at this, this person who made such an impact and seemed to be so out of place? Because if you go back to what we just talked about, really, I think it's important to understand that the first Africans in America were not enslaved people. Juan Garrido came here uh, with uh, Ponce de Leon, who thought they were exploring an island that they named La Florida or Florida. And Juan Garrido was not a slave. He was a Spanish conquistador. He was a African prince and he was integral in almost every colonization point of Spain in the what we call the New World, right? So when he applied for his pension from the Spanish king, he wrote what they call his probanza or basically like his resume and he explained to the king, like, you should give me a pension because I was the first person to grow wheat in the Americas. I helped with the con conquering of Cuba and Puerto Rico and Mexico. And I discovered La Florida. And I was there at every significant event. And I look when uh, this explorer said he wanted to go to this island where these mythical black women lived with piles of gold i went with him and i helped him name that what he thought was an island it turned out to be a peninsula called california so the idea that black people existed and helped with the origin story of america is important because again when you're stripped of that history and the culture and that that knowledge and reduced to property as slaves, it's important to know that the American project begins with black people. Mm -hmm. You know, this might be a, a hard question to answer, but is, is there a particular era of history that is the most whitewashed or the most in need of clarifying? And I guess we, we could be living in that era right now, but but is was there one that you did feel like it, it needed a focus, it needed a clarity. Yeah, I think the most whitewashed version of history is, gosh, that's a great question. I would think the period of post-emancipation, right? Because we don't talk, we talk about, even when we talk about reconstruction, we'll talk about the violence, but we don't necessarily talk about the things that that black people built for themselves that in states like south carolina and mississippi there were that were majority black the black people created many of the institutions that we know today for instance the entire american education system was created by the majority black constitutional delegation of south carolina so uh, a constitutionally enforced school system mandatory didn't exist in America before black people created created it. Uh, we create black people were integral in every form of universal male suffrage that existed from Maine at the beginning before there was an America to after the Civil War. 
every time black people got the chance, we said, let everybody vote. Um, and the institutions that we built during reconstruction that were largely destroyed during the violence and the terrorism, the idea that these, the violence during reconstruction were individual acts and not a national campaign of state-sponsored terrorism that actually overthrew the country. We don't understand it in that way because it has been whitewashed. You know, there there is a vibe with this book at times that feels like a bit like a school textbook. Your chapters, they include these multiple choice questions at the ends, um, three little questions they're called, or just activities. And, you know, for instance, one of them, the activity is, you are tasked with creating a humane system of enslavement that will not cause your human chattel to escape, revolt, or otherwise resist. In one million words or fewer, describe this system. So this this feels like a bit of a joke. You know, you're, you're making a point here, but you're also exposing some of the absurdity. Another uh, activity you include is construct a racially equitable education system. No, not on paper. Do it in real life. What were your thinking in adding these activities? Is this a bit of of levity or is there an importance to pointing out um, some of the contradictions here or the notion that these subjects can be boiled down into simple summary questions with easy answers at the end? I think it's a little bit of both, right? So I think there is levity to it and I want to I want it to make this like a textbook with unit reviews and test questions and quizzes. And I also use those things to expose some of the notions that we have about history, right? So, you know, there though I'll ask questions like, "Hey, um what is a white person? Is it a French person from Haiti, right? Or is it a Spanish person from Mexico? Or is it a, a African who lived in France before? Like, like so dismantling the idea of whiteness, dismantling the idea of race to show us how we subconsciously accept these predetermined notions of white supremacy and how they're embedded in our textbooks and the way we understand history was a goal of those questions at the end of the chapters. We need to take a quick break here. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. I'm Danny Wisentowski, in for Elaine Shaw. I'm talking today with author and journalist Michael Harriet. He'll be in St. Louis next week to talk about his new book, Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. 
Michael, before the break, we were talking about the way that you had built this book as a kind of textbook. Um, but you also cover a lot of recent events, not just the distant history. And one of those events are the protests in Ferguson. Uh, those, of course, occurred after the August 9th, 2014 killing of Michael Brown. He was shot and killed by Officer Darren Wilson. You were there during the protests on the ground. And we are all now kind of preparing for the 10th anniversary. And we just marked the 9th. What are you reflecting on at this point when you're thinking about Ferguson now that we're almost a decade later? I am thinking about the uprising. I am thinking about how Ferguson exposed the two Americas um, and not just the killing because we, we reduce it to the killing of Michael Brown, but what we eventually learned and what I talk about in my book was that the systemic issues that created the atmosphere that led to the killing of Michael Brown, the police state that these uh, communities live in, the way that they were basically impoverished by the system that they that they fund funded. And I think that that is important to know that these random incidents aren't just random incidents. They are created through systemic issues that we also have to fix because it's not just a single racist police officer. It is the systems that enable these activities to continue to exist. Michael, you, you introduce Ferguson in a chapter that, that really overall grapples with the idea of, of nonviolent protest and resistance and the contrast between those two. Did Ferguson change how you viewed that difference? I think in a large part it did. I think that I've always believed that we understand, a, in understanding a whitewashed version of history, we believe things that are never true, like the nonviolent civil rights movement, which it was not nonviolence. The white people were plenty violent. And the idea that black people achieved civil rights through a method or a strategy that never existed in the known world, right? Uh, the way America created was created was through violence and bloodshed. The way we ended slavery was through violence and bloodshed. The way, you know, even Jesus came here and knew he had to die. Like there was no progress in this world or in the history of this country that we achieved without violence, except we have whitewashed the civil rights movement to to make people believe that black people held hands and sang a few freedom songs and achieved civil rights when that is not what happened. And so Ferguson is instructive in, in seeing this because it shows us that I don't know if we would have ever known or had this robust conversation about police brutality since then if it hadn't been violent. You know, on, on that, that topic of, of the nature of violence and in the, in the Ferguson protests, you describe this, this really powerful encounter you had in August 14, and you write about how 
there was a you know a young man who was near you, and you write about how you clenched the rock-tossing hand of a 19-year-old kid who you had just met, and you're trying to convince him not to throw, not to be the first one to throw that rock in the way that the way the media will present this, and the way they'll call you know everyone at the protest thugs, and at the end of that, someone else throws a rock, and and of course that is how that protest is described as turning violent, as as having thugs. Um, as you know, and not as you know, contending with the bigger issues, with the death of Michael Brown, the systemic issues you've just pointed out. You bring up that incident in a way that that makes me wonder if you've reflected on that, or or, or if you've been wrestling with what you had done, or if you would do the same thing today if you were in the same position. How how do you feel about that incident, and and would you do something different? I think. I might have been reluctant to even try to stop it because I understand that in understanding history, the people who fight for their rights, especially if they are black, will always be made into the villains. We saw it with Black Lives Matter. We saw it with Martin Luther King. We saw it with the civil rights movement who was poor, called communists. We saw it with the 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 red summer the anti-lynching activists who were called un-american we saw it we see it throughout history that the people especially black people are never going to be seen in a positive light no matter how non-violent or or compliant they are so there is no need to try to perpetuate this idea of goodwill for a people who goodwill who have never experienced the goodwill of this country you might as well fight for your rights and and that's basically what the the kid told you back as as you recount in the book you know when you're expressing your concern to him you know what are people going to write about this if you throw that rock he responds you know like that stuff matters can't you see they're going to kill us anyway um it sounds like he he was already on, on on the page you're on now yeah, I think he was probably had made uh, farther down the road in that idea than I was. But I, I think that it is also uh, a lesson in how I came to understand what people experience uh, and how protests are about desperation. Like we've asked for this in every imaginable way possible. And like it's almost a mirror uh, instance is almost reflective of what the Declaration of Independence is, right? Right. Just think about the words of the Declaration of Independence. They basically said, in every way possible, we've pleaded with King George for our rights. And now we are left with this, right? We declare our independence. We're going to have to fight now. And we look at what black people do as different from what America does when it is all the same desperation and the right to freedom that we are all fighting for. Michael, after the Ferguson protests, you reported on the the protests that broke out in 2017. That was when, um, you know, the end of a murder trial involving a police officer named Jason Stockley. He had shot and killed a man named Anthony, Anthony Lamar Smith in 2011 and was brought up on murder charges. Stockley was eventually acquitted, and, and you covered these protests just as you had done in Ferguson. And 
in your writing, you, you wrote about this a bit in, in an interesting way. You described St. Louis as, as kind of like an orca, a killer whale, and that it might not be fair, it might not solve the problem, but whenever a community of people finally decide to stand up to get their oppressors, no matter how bloody, ugly, or out of control it may get, it's kind of beautiful, actually. And you said, St. Louis is the whale. Talk, talk about what you meant there, that, that beauty and what you saw. Was that, was that something that you had carried over from Ferguson, this understanding, or, or did something change about those Stockley protests in 2017 that, that elicited that, that really, you know, very pointed kind of imagery? Yeah, I think it, it is something that uh, it kind of evolved into the beauty that I see because when like, the, the origin story of that is that I was working as a substitute teacher once and this little kid told me that he was at the famous SeaWorld incident when the killer whale attacked one of the workers at SeaWorld. And I later saw that little kid in Ferguson, right, years later. And when he said the killer whale attacked the woman, he said it was kind of beautiful. As a little kid, he said, no, it was kind of beautiful, actually. Well, what is a protest besides a desperate attempt to gain one's freedom? And when we see those fires burning, when we see those people unite in a declaration of independence, it's kind of beautiful to me. It is kind of the essence of what we believe America is. This unquenchable desire for freedom, for to believe that one is a human, as a human being to, to demand one's humanity be taken into account. It's a beautiful thing to me. And even though there's blood sometimes, it is still a thing of beauty. Michael, with a kind of last question here, your book makes so many powerful cases about the way that black people are the reason why we even have a democracy, uh, the reason why the Constitution has amendments, so many critical roles they've played without getting the same sort of historical highlight as everyone else. And I'm wondering, are there black AF moments from Missouri or St. Louis history that you would want to leave our audience with? that may have also been undercut or, or overshadowed by, by these other forms of history? Well, there are a, a lot of them for, you know, for, when we think about the state of Missouri was formed out of the, the interest in ending race-based slavery uh, from Ferguson to all of these protests. But I think one of the things that we can uh, learn about the history of black people through Missouri is that when black people were emancipated or when we emancipated ourselves, um, we create, we went to these places like what became St. Louis to get away from oppression and to form our own communities and exist in self-determination. And so what we call the great migration, this move to the Midwest uh, 
is part of black people's desire for freedom. And I think that the history of Missouri and the history of St. Louis, we see that throughout its history. And I think that that is instructive to knowing the history of black people. Michael Harriet is a columnist, journalist, noted threader of threads on Twitter, the site now known as X, and author of the upcoming book, Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. The book is out September 19th, and he will be in St. Louis on September 22nd to talk about that book at the Schlafly Public Library at 225 North Euclid Avenue. The event will also be live-streamed on the YouTube page of Left Bank Books. Michael Harriet, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.